Blog Talk Radio. Started submitting some other places too, but 
just nobody, not even Huffington Post, where Peter Schwartz, an objectivist, publishes pieces over there all the time. No, they don't want the solution to the issue. And so what am I doing? I'm doubting how well this is written or if it's a good piece or anything else. And it was just nice finally when, yes, you know, Craig, he's a demanding editor. Those of you who have worked for him over at Objective Standard and, you know, I was kind of in my own little world. I, I, I just wrote and edited this whole thing. Um, I had a couple friends who looked at it and made just some broad suggestions, but I was the one, you know, who, so I was thinking, okay, I'm in my, maybe my little solipsistic bubble and I think it's good, but it's not or whatever. So anyway, thanks Craig, because I did, I thought it was clear and well-written and logical and all those good things. I'm going to go ahead and read it to you actually, because, I don't recall having given up all sorts of copyrights to that. It's not exclusive in terms of that. I'm going to go ahead and read it to you. You can find it over at Objective Standard. What I would ask is, just out of a personal favor to me, because if you have followed me for a long time, you know that this theory is my baby. It's kind of like the baby of my academic career. My academic career is gone. Um, but this is, you know, the baby that you don't want to throw out with the bathwater. This is the the good thing. It's a theory that makes sense about how to solve exactly the issue presented in Carpenter versus United States. So it's not just, oh, I'm going out here, I'm trying to, you know, write an op-ed on privacy to get attention. This is the issue that really all of the thinking I did in my career prepared me to come up and come with the solution. I think the solution is a perfectly logical one if we are still in a country founded on individual rights and that we can still take the rights to property and contracts seriously and that we still want to have legal distinctions that are rooted in our common law traditions. If that is still us as this country, then this is a solution to this problem that should get, I think, some serious play. But let me read you the piece. You judge for yourself. What I would ask if you are a follower, listener to this show, is that in ever, whatever way is available to you and that you can do without some sort of horrible repercussions in your life, if you could share this around, I would really appreciate it. Um, you know, if you value this show, if I provide value to you in any way, I would ask that you try to share it around. I'm doing whatever I can. Those of you who follow me on social media, you know I did this silly stunt, which was I changed my profile pictures on Twitter and Facebook, and I actually put the picture in the blog talk little, they have, you know, three little images that I put that play while you guys are listening on the blog talk website. And one of them is this image that I've been using as my profile picture for the last day, trying to get attention for this piece. It's just, it's a silly stunt, but it actually worked on Twitter. I was getting all these retweets and people said it worked. I actually read it because I put this picture with this hat this hat that I'd worn to the first day of issue of the Ayn Rand stamp. It's actually, it's, you know, it's a cute picture or whatever, but I wouldn't put this crazy hat in a profile picture typically, but I'm doing it whatever I can to get attention for this piece. I have to feel like whatever I can do, I've tried to do to draw attention to the argument and then let it go. You know, so I say, don't let it go is the title of the show, right? Don't let it go on her. But at a certain point you do, you just, you kind of let it go out there in the world. You know that you've done what you can. I've done boosts on Facebook through both, you know, two of my pages because I've got the legalized privacy page, not very active, got the show page. I'm doing whatever. So those of you who have 
sent donations recently to the show. I thank you for that because what I've done is I've turned around and I've been buying ads on Facebook um, to try to boost the post out there and stuff as well. So whatever you guys can do to help me spread the word, thank you. With that preamble, let me go ahead and read this to you. Privacy is today effectively illegal. On a typical day, we share information about ourselves with several third parties, internet service providers, social media companies, stores, banks, and more. Thanks to technology, this sharing makes our lives richer and more convenient. Enter the third-party doctrine. It says that once we share information with a third party, the Fourth Amendment warrant requirement no longer applies. In other words, the government may obtain whatever information we share with third parties without presenting a warrant based on probable cause and particularized suspicion. All your data are belong to the U.S. government unless there's a statute protecting it. Even when a statute protects data from government's prying eyes, it typically requires the government produce something less than probable cause and particularized suspicion. Moreover, once the government has obtained assorted pieces of information about you, all it takes is a president's pen and phone to combine databases across alphabet agency lines. Soon, all the data about your daily activities is collected in one place, accessible to any politician, bureaucrat, or hacker. What's the solution besides living a monastic life off the grid? We could hope companies like Apple continue to improve their encryption technology so we're not sharing much information with third parties when they're using their products or services. That could work so long as government doesn't crack the encryption or, worse, ban encryption technology altogether, as even some better politicians have suggested. We could advocate for the legislative equivalent of the Fourth Amendment's warrant requirement, and that might work if privacy remains popular with enough voters. Otherwise, legislation will simply be repealed when political winds shift. Enduring reliable protection for the data we share with third parties must come from the Fourth Amendment. This is precisely the opportunity presented by Carpenter v. United States to be heard today, has been heard today by the Supreme Court in the op-ed it says soon to be heard. Carpenter concerns the application of the third-party doctrine to cell site location information collected by service providers. Petitioner Carpenter argues that, unlike other data shared with a third party, longer-term cell phone collection data, collection, uh, excuse me, cell phone location data here collected for 127 days, is something in which one has a quote reasonable expectation of privacy. And then I have a paren, reasonable expectation of privacy is the standard the court uses to determine whether a search has occurred within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. Accordingly, Carpenter argues that the third-party doctrine should apply neither to the longer-term cell phone location data nor to similarly sensitive data. And here's a quote from Carpenter's brief to the court. Quote, there is no basis in the court's jurisprudence for extending Smith and Miller, and Smith and Miller are the cases that extend the third-party doctrine to ordinary business records. So there's, they say, you know, there's no basis in the court's jurisprudence for extending Smith and Miller to cell site location information, both because the information is more sensitive 
and because it is not voluntarily shared with a third party in any meaningful way, end quote. Once you extend the scope of this third-party doctrine to ordinary business records, how do you draw even a semi-bright line, particularly one for which there is a principled rationale? How long is the long term over which one's data is collected before one's expectation of privacy becomes reasonable? Why shouldn't digital information be subsumed if analog is? How sensitive is sensitive? And so on. The court should overturn Smith and Miller and return the third-party doctrine to its original scope, sharing information with government agents in the course of criminal activity. While the lack of a bright line beyond this scope is one sign of a problem, there's a more important one. In Miller, the first case in which the court extended the doctrine beyond the criminal context, it never justified its decision to do so. Such justification is due because although there's good reason to believe that one has no legitimate expectation of privacy in information shared with third parties in the course of criminal activity, there is no reason to assume a lack of legitimate expectation when sharing information during the normal activities of daily life. The distinction lies in the common law doctrine of illegal contract which says that courts will not uphold any agreement, the purpose of which is to achieve an illegal end. If Tony Soprano makes an arrangement with a business associate, it's unenforceable, including any promise that's made to keep the arrangement a secret. Drawing upon a property and contract-based conception of privacy, I've argued that the doctrine of illegal contract makes the third-party doctrine as originally conceived, superfluous. I hope others will see that this common law doctrine provides the court with a principled reason, one firmly rooted in our legal traditions, to limit the third-party doctrine to criminal contexts and to stop treating the rest of us like criminals. This approach would also be consistent with the property-based conception of the Fourth Amendment that Justice Scalia was developing in the years before his death. Justice Gorsuch, please pick up Scalia's mantle in Carpenter and help the court to legalize privacy. This opportunity expires soon. That's the end of it. So that ending there was suggested by Craig. So thanks for Craig. He's, you know, sort of um, amping up the ending there a little bit. That was one of his suggestions was to amp up the ending a bit there, be more directly, you know, addressing Gorsuch with the... uh, you know, the idea of the opportunity expiring soon. And then the other was just a kind of a stylistic thing, but it was a, a little writing tip that I needed to learn, which is to use whereas versus while. So yeah, I still have things to learn in writing, but I thought that's clear. It's concise. It's, it's very, it's dense. So you do have to read it carefully and digest each sentence in order to get the whole thing there. But I think it motivates the solution. It tells you what the solution is. And again, The crux of it is that the Supreme Court took this doctrine, this third-party doctrine that arose in a criminal context, and transported it over to a non-criminal context, the so-called ordinary business records context, and they never explained why it was okay to bring it from the criminal context to the non-criminal context, and that that didn't have any 
relevance to the legitimacy of the expectation of privacy. And like I say, this common law doctrine, and if, you know, again, if you understand the roots of privacy, that anytime there is a, a, you know, kind of a, you know, a, a rights violation connected with an invasion of privacy, whenever that is, you can reduce the rights violation that happened to an instance of a violation of your property right or your contract right. A lot of people talk about the so-called right to privacy, but the whole first part of my academic research was exploring what in the academic literature is known as the reductionist argument. And a whole bunch of thinkers have talked about the fact that any legitimate privacy case you can reduce to some violation of a property right or, you know, and for me, contract is something that I focused on. So, you know, given that I have always thought about privacy in this way, this property and contract oriented way, it's just very natural to notice the difference between the criminal context and the non-criminal context. You and I, when we get a phone contract with the cell phone provider, we are not in the course of a criminal enterprise. We're just trying to get phone service. And so any agreement that we have with the phone company, which incorporates sort of these side provisions about them keeping our data private, that is perfectly legitimate. It should be completely upheld. The only thing that should be able to violate that or, or enter that is a warrant based on probable cause, based on particularized suspicion. So there's actually one sentence that it keeps praying in my mind that I should have put in this 800 word that I've condensed down piece. And it's just a, you know, sort of make more explicit what it would mean for privacy to be legal. It's all implicit throughout here, but what does it mean for privacy to be legal? It means that you could make a contract with a third party to keep your information private and that contract would actually be upheld. And the only thing that would be able to invade that you know, the privacy created by that contract would be a government that's producing a warrant based on probable cause, based on particular suspicion. But today, it is illegal. Privacy is illegal. Why? Because there's all this sharing you do. And, you know, we do all this sharing because our lives have been made so much richer when we share information with these third parties. Some people would argue, they'd say, well, is the internet really, yeah, the, the internet makes our lives richer. And, you know, if if you find that sometimes the internet is not making your life richer, it's probably because you're not handling your use of the internet the way that you would like to. Um, so yeah, it it makes our lives richer, it makes our lives better, and so we do it. It's such and and it's not just on the internet; it's all all throughout daily life. There's so many times that we share information with third parties because it just makes our lives easier. You know, you lay down a credit card at the store when you buy stuff and all and all the different things that you do. Our life consists in sharing. And so therefore, if we have absolutely no privacy, our agreements with these third parties will not be upheld. Court just declared that in Smith and Miller and it's just going to be applied everywhere. Every time you share something with a third party, boom, it's not private anymore. You have no privacy. It's been made illegal in a society like we have today. And so, yeah, I want them to legalize privacy. I want them to recognize 
that a contract is a valid way to protect privacy and that that contract should remain inviolate unless the government can come to you producing a warrant based on probable cause, based on particularized suspicion. So um, that's the crux of the argument, that the court completely ignored the one aspect of what it was doing when it went into the Miller and Smith cases. Smith and Miller are just a few years apart, and um, Miller is actually the first one, but it's interesting because Miller, because it's this banking case and because there were already in play all of these regulations that Congress had enacted that made the banks have to turn over all this information about us and stuff, the court in Miller just sort of assumed that we don't have a legitimate expectation of privacy. In fact, let me go ahead and get, um, I've got pulled up and I have it in the program notes. If you want, I've got links to the justia versions of the Supreme court's holdings in both Miller and Smith. And in Miller, they were talking about the so-called bank secrecy act and all this stuff and so they did not, they never addressed the idea that when they go into an ordinary business records context where the people are not engaged in a criminal enterprise, you know, we're just trying to do business with a bank. We're not Tony Soprano. They didn't address this idea that somehow the legitimate expectation of privacy could exist for us non-criminals, but it wouldn't exist for you know, Tony Soprano. So what did they say? I mean, they did say things about legitimate expectation of privacy, whether you did. They just ignored completely this idea that they're bringing the, you know, bringing this doctrine into the non-criminal context. So this is what they say. They say, the lack of any legitimate expectation of privacy concerning the information kept in bank records was assumed by Congress in enacting the Bank Secrecy Act, the express purpose of which is to require records to be maintained because they, quote, have a high degree of usefulness in criminal, tax, and regulatory investigations and proceedings, end quote. So maintain records, report them on everybody. Why? Because these records are useful in criminal investigations. So treat us all like criminals. Assume that we all have no privacy now. We all live in Bentham's Panopticon or whatever. Let's let us all do that. Why? Because, you know, having these records is is useful. I mean, if you're going to find a needle in a haystack, you got to have the haystack, right? That's what Greg Gutfeld said on one of the shows. I can't stop quoting him on that because it's just so horrible. Um, government has a right to make a haystack out of all your data, according to this type of argument. Why? Because Congress just assumed that you don't have a legitimate expectation anymore. These records could be very useful. And so it goes, right? So in this Miller, which happened to be the first of the two, the Smith versus Miller, they had this Bank Secrecy Act to sort of lean on and just assume that you don't have any legitimate expectation. They still never explicitly address the fact that, boy, they're going straight from the criminal context before this. Before this, it was all the third-party doctrine. It only applied in the context where they were doing these criminal investigations. You know, they've got a government agent infiltrating the mafia, and, you know, the head of the mafia guy is sharing his secrets with the 
government agent, not knowing he's a government agent, and, you know, he's talking about the details. Oh, we're going to do a hit on so-and-so at such-and-such or whatever criminal enterprise they're engaged in and the context, right? Nobody talked about it then, but, you know, everybody sort of knew when they created this third-party doctrine, everybody knew that any expectation of privacy that somebody had in that context was not legitimate, right? It's not legitimate for Tony Soprano to expect privacy when he's sitting there engaged in the middle of a criminal enterprise. It's like, oh, let's go violate a whole bunch of people's rights and let's keep it secret. You'll keep it secret, right? And I expect that agreement to keep it secret to be enforceable and, and legitimate. No, right? The whole thing is tainted by the, in the common law by that underlying criminal enterprise. In my thinking, that third-party doctrine, when it originally came about, it was based on people understanding that any contract that was made, any agreement, was part of an illegal contract, and so therefore would be unenforceable. No legitimate expectation of privacy, because your expectation of privacy is based on an illegal contract. But that's not true in this other context. And people, uh, you know, as time goes on, as decades go on, And particularly as the court shifted over to the so-called reasonable expectation of privacy test, they forget any even implicit understanding of this sort of case that rests on contract and, and property. So, you know, how did we get here? We got here ironically because of the whole framework that Brandeis and Warren instituted when they were arguing for a so-called right to privacy way back in 1890. And, you know, again, people who have been following me, if you've read my work, my whole work started, my whole work on this issue started when Leonard Peikoff, when I was doing, I was working as a research assistant for him on his radio show, he was reading whatever was going on at the time about privacy. And I was a law student and he said, you know, I don't know, you know, you're a law student. Can you look this up? Can you see, is there really a right to privacy? He questioned, you know, is there a right to privacy, a distinct right to privacy? There was something in the news that had made him question that. So he sends me off and I, you know, have been in tort law class and stuff in law school. And all of us are always taught that the article that gave rise to the whole right to privacy is this one very famous one, right to privacy, I think is what it's called. Very simple title. Harvard Law Review, 1890, written by Warren and Brandeis. And the whole first thing that I did was go through there and say, okay, why is it that these two guys think that there needs to be a distinct right to privacy? And they spend the whole article talking about how, well, up until now, property and contract have been protecting our privacy, but they're not enough. They're not enough. We need more. And so then they talk about you need this right to privacy in addition to property and contract in order to properly. And they had arguments like instantaneous photography exists and property and contract can't handle that example and other examples and stuff they give. And so the whole first part of my work was to look at this and say, no, actually, if you would think a little bit harder, then you could understand how property and contract could apply to the different types of cases. But, you know, you have to understand the Craig in the chat room says, isn't banking a criminal enterprise? I just got distracted by that. No, I don't believe banking in and of itself is a 
criminal enterprise. But I think you're asking that facetiously because, yes, a lot of people do think that banking is a criminal enterprise. And so they think, well, you know, of course, it's just banking. So aren't you engaged in criminal activity whenever you want to keep your own money and do stuff with it according to your own wishes, right? Um, Or you could say banking today is a criminal enterprise because it's the government, like, siphoning off all your money through all the banks today. I don't know. Um, I'm being cynical. Okay, so go back. So, um, oh, God, I lost my train of thought. That's pretty funny. Um, oh, where was I? Can you, can you guys tell me where I was before I got distracted by the fun comment about the banking? Um, oh, okay, so, yeah, it was Warren and Brandeis, right? So the whole first part of my research was looking at that article and you know, saying, was there this reason? And they, they said, oh, you know, property and contract are not enough. And here's this distinct right to privacy that we're going to have in addition. So it's like, you're going to get more. Um, now, one of Brandeis's agendas with this, of course, was because he's a pragmatist. He's a pragmatist. And he did not believe in rights to property and contract. And a lot of this became clear as you saw him go on to the Supreme Court and do all the progressive stuff there following in, in the Holmes tradition, right? Of progressive, um, just complete pragmatism, no rights to property and contracts. So what Brandeis would like you to do is take this thing that you really care about privacy and detach it from the actual foundations in reality. I mean, if you actually look at what you do to protect privacy, you're using property or you're using some agreement with somebody else, a contract, to protect it. That's how you do it in society, right? If you're living among other people, you're going to need something to create a zone of privacy for yourself. And the thing that you need is an exercise of property or contract, right? Brandeis wants you to forget all that. And he would like to make it this distinct right to privacy. And in particular, total pragmatist style, he wants this right to privacy ultimately to be limited by the demands of society. So, you know, when property and contract rights first existed in in the common law, they were absolute. Now, not intrinsic, but absolute meaning, you know, within the appropriate context, you would have a right to use and dispose, et cetera, of your property. Not so with privacy. So privacy is created out of whole cloth as a distinct right in this article by Warren Brandeis in the article itself in 1890, they're saying, of course, this right to privacy is going to be limited by the needs of society. Society is going to sometimes need to invade individual privacy. So on the one hand, they're saying you need more than property and contract. On the other, they're saying this other more thing that we're going to give you is going to be limited by the needs of society. Fast forward later when the right to privacy, the so-called right to privacy starts to come into the courts. You know, it actually starts to be upheld first in the state courts, later in the federal courts. First one is Pavisich in 1905, if I recall correctly, a Georgia case where they start bringing the right to privacy in as a, as a distinct right. You know, but once they start bringing privacy in as this distinct right, then you start to see that it's not going to give you property and contract plus more. 
it's actually going to give you less than you ever had when your rights to property and contract were upheld. This is the nature of pragmatism. So it, it, in eventually, this thing that was supposed to supplement your rights to property and contract ended up replacing it entirely. And this right to privacy that's replaced it, fast forward even more, when you go to the so-called CATS test for privacy, you know, the question that they ask is, do you have a reasonable expectation of privacy? If you do have this reasonable expectation, then the Fourth Amendment would protect whatever it is. If you don't have a reasonable expectation, then you don't. And around Smith and Miller, they were doing a two-pronged test. They were saying, do you actually expect privacy? And then on the other hand, it, even if you actually expect privacy, is your expectation legitimate? Uh, eventually it collapsed into, is it legitimate? But w- what is the legitimacy cash out as now in, in a, you know, in a pragmatist mind, the legitimacy just cashes out on does society demand access to your information? Yeah. I mean, you demand privacy, you expect privacy, you think you should reasonably expect privacy. I mean, Hey, I make a private agreement with my bank. I make a private agreement with my cell phone company. I share information with them for a limited purpose. I want service, but I don't expect that they just, on you know exchange are going to go out and share all this but what this test does this reasonable expectation of privacy test is it balances your demand for privacy with the demands of everybody else that your information gets shared with the government in the name of so-called security or protecting us from unscrupulous bankers or you know whatever it is that they think you need to be protected from this week, or even if they don't think you need to be protected, they need to pretend they're protecting you so that they can collect all of your data. Um, So how did we get here? You know, how do we get to the point where, you know, first of all, in Smith versus, you know, in Smith and Miller, these two cases, um, you know, Miller versus Maryland, Smith versus, you know, Smith Smith versus Maryland, Miller versus the United States. Um, In both of these cases, the, court decided, hey, ordinary business records, any business record collected in the course of ordinary business by these companies is fair game to the government. No probable cause, no particular suspicion, no warrant needed at all. How did we get to that point? We got to that point because of pragmatism. And I actually, I have out there, I don't know if you can still find it online. I have a whole paper that I wrote just called Pragmatism and Privacy where I go in detail into some of the cases uh, that led up to and also the CATS reasonable expectation of privacy test. And I tell you exactly why it has, this jurisprudence has all the hallmarks of pragmatism. And in particular, this is in the research for that paper is where I found this one statement from James that I found to be so valuable. I've been referring to that statement by William James as I've been looking at what Trump is doing with his presidency. You know, what you always want to do with pragmatists, right? They always say, well, do what works. Well, what's your standard of what works? What is good according to a pragmatist? And James said in this one paper, he said that the good is simply that which satisfies demand. The good is that which satisfies demand. 
And so what does the reasonable expectation of privacy test do? It balances the demands that you have for your privacy and whatever it is, you know, the information that I share with my cell phone provider in order to get service from the different cell site locations, right? I share that information with them to get the service. But I demand privacy in that. I'm I'm just doing it for the purpose of getting service on my cell phone, right? What pragmatism demands is that your request or your expectation of privacy be balanced against everybody else's demands, that your information be contributed to the haystack in which your security requires that we be able to find the needle in the haystack at any time. And so we have to have the haystack. That's what happens with this reasonable expectation of privacy test. So, you know, if you think about, is the court going to legalize privacy? Is the court going to legalize privacy? I would say no, insofar as the court is stuck in this whole reasonable expectation of privacy paradigm. If they're going to allow themselves to remain there, then there's a problem. But in this piece, you know, again, this piece is very dense, but at the very end, I refer to Justice Scalia's recent jurisprudence. And you can think what you want of Justice Scalia, and there's oftentimes where I would criticize, complain about Scalia. Scalia was an originalist, and originalists have their limitations. Tara Smith has written wonderfully about you know, what are the limitations of originalism in jurisprudence? Putting that aside, what Scalia had been doing in the years before his death is kind of reminding everybody that even though privacy, Fourth Amendment privacy jurisprudence has been governed overall by this cat's reasonable expectation of privacy test, even though that's been the case, nonetheless, The Fourth Amendment, we should look at the language when it refers to persons, houses, papers, and effects. And we should take those words to mean something. And so he was, you know, as I was talking about earlier, originally when they talked about having a distinct right to privacy, it was, well, you have property and contract, but that's not enough. You need privacy in addition to that. So you'll have your property and your contract and then privacy. And then for a long time, just the privacy and the reasonable expectation of privacy framework that was replacing any idea that property and contract were important at all with respect to privacy. Scalia was bringing it back a little bit and way back, way back in 2012, way back five years ago, there was a case United States versus Jones. And this is the case that first got me thinking about my solution here. United States versus Jones. And I've talked about it on the show before. That's the case in which the court asked whether it is a search for the police to attach a GPS device to a car, right? And they decided that, yes, it is a search, and so you needed to have a valid, valid warrant. The warrant that they had, they actually did have a warrant in U.S. versus Jones, but it had expired or they had gone outside the geographical limitation of the warrant or whatever it was. So they, they did have a warrant, but it wasn't valid for collecting the information that, you know, that was at issue in U.S. versus Jones. So 
um, you know, they had, they had to ask this question, do you need a warrant? And they say, yes, you do. That is a search. And Scalia talked about the fact that your car is your effect. You know, it's this thing that belongs to you. And when the government attaches this device to your effect, your car, that means something. So Fourth Amendment protects persons, houses, papers, effects. There was also a Kilo case which is not the eminent domain case, but this is a different one, K-Y-L-L-O. And in that case, the court had, excuse me, not the court, the government had trained onto someone's house a device that would detect the heat that was emanating from the person's house or townhome or condo, whatever. And the heat-seeking device was able to show that on this one part of a roof of this person's townhome or house or whatever, there was a lot of heat emanating from it. And often a lot of heat emanating from a roof of someone's house could mean that you've got a uh, little pot farm, you know, marijuana farm growing in your house, right? You're using heat lamps and stuff to grow your pot. So then I guess they busted the guy. Uh, Scalia said, yeah, that's when they use that high tech device to detect the differences in the heat coming off of roof in different locations and stuff that because that device is being used to gain information that would be able to, you know, be gleaned only if you'd search the house, right? You know, you're getting this information that you should have needed to search for, but now you have this high tech device that that is a search. So using a high tech device like that to get information that normally would require you to actually enter the home, that's a search. Fourth amendment, protects persons, houses, papers, and effects. So he did the house thing in Kilo. He did the effect thing in Jones. Then what, you know, uh, one argument of the brief that Carpenter put in there is that they should treat the, you know, the cell phone records as effects or no, actually no, as papers, as papers. So they're, you know, they, they did try to pick up on this trend and say, okay, your cell phone records are papers. Um, what I think the court could do with that sort of argument is they could look at the arguments in Miller. In Miller, they say, well, it's not your records, it's the bank's records, right? So in this case, Carpenter, if they want to ignore it, they'll say, well, it's not your papers, it's the papers of the cell phone company. The cell phone, I mean, you don't create these records about what tower you travel to and from. It's the cell phone company that collects the records about what tower, you know, what cell phone tower you're using as you go about your day. It collects that information. Why? Because it needs to know, you know, where are people using their service? Maybe they need to make a stronger tower in a certain place because people are using it more there. Or maybe they're deciding where they're going to put their next tower and they're noticing that people are going from this place to that place and they're dropping off a lot. So maybe we'll put a tower there. You know, they use it for their purposes. They say, well, it's their records. But again, when you share your information to the cell phone company, you're doing it for a limited purpose. It's for them to be able to provide you a service. It's not, okay, well, once I've shared it, I'd never expect it to be private ever again, ever, ever, ever. Um, and that's the way that the, the court is, is taking it. In the chat room, Selfishness asked this question. Can I make a contract with a business um, guilty until proven innocent if I'm also guilty until proven innocent? Okay, so the idea is that 
if a business is treated guilty until proven innocent, am I also then treated that way? I mean, it seems that way today, right? And this is the thing that's interesting. Um, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff in this for me, but I'm, I'm a geek, right? In Smith, and, and, you know, kind of honing my argument that as I presented it in the objective standard required going through this additional bit of exercise, and it was thanks to Oren Kerr. Oren Kerr is a scholar who writes for Volokh Conspiracy, among other places, but he's, you know, very smart man. And he had this paper where he was focusing on Smith. And in Smith, the court talked about the, the reasonable expectation of privacy used to be considered to be two prongs. And they, the court would always go through these two prongs. And actually, I believe being that I was taught in law school two prongs, that did you actually have an expectation of privacy? They called it the subjective test. Did you have a subjective expectation of privacy? Did you yourself actually expect privacy in whatever the thing was? And then the second part of the inquiry was, is that an expectation that that society is prepared to recognize as reasonable? That's the two-pronged test. And what Kerr was arguing is that really it's only one prong. It's just, is this an expectation that society is prepared to recognize as reasonable? And that the subjective part really shouldn't either be required or weigh very much. They had this interesting argument in Smith. It was, it was, to me, kind of ironic. There's a footnote in Smith, and Kerr was, you know, talking about this footnote in his paper. In the footnote, they say, well, the subjective test is really just kind of baloney because all the government would have to do is declare that henceforth. Everybody is subject to search all the time, anywhere, in anything, you know, that the police can come in your house every day, no warrants required, you know. And imagine if they did that. Now, you would never have a subjective expectation. In fact, a lot of people walk around saying privacy. We don't have privacy anymore, you know, because the big bad corporations have it. Okay, so if nobody has a subjective expectation and you having a search in the meaning of the Fourth Amendment requires that you do have a subjective expectation, then there's a million ways to just get rid of everybody's subjective expectation of privacy, right? Your actual expectation. Um, And the court said in Smith, they said, no, this is not enough. You have to go through a normative analysis of it. Should you expect privacy? Would a reasonable person expect privacy in that context? Ironically, in Smith, they went right along with Miller in, in effect, doing what they joked about, half-joking, in the footnote, which was they said, hey, henceforth, everything that's ordinary business records is subject to government retrieval without any kind of warrant, probable cause, particular suspicion. All your data are belong to us, said the court in Miller and Smith. That's what they said. Um, in Smith, they said, no, you shouldn't be able just to do that. There should be some sort of normative analysis. But it was very thin on normative analysis. And in particular, I think in Miller or Smith or both, they, you know, they, they got away with it in Miller because Miller had this Banking Secrecy Act thing that you know, Congress declared that there's no legitimate expectation and then they waved their hands. But in one of those two cases, 
the court needed to grapple with the idea that they're taking this doctrine that arose in a criminal context, arose in the context of people like Tony Soprano making illegal contracts that are unenforceable at common law. They took this doctrine from that context and applied it to just you and me, ordinary people going about our daily business and our daily lives where a reasonable person would expect privacy. Now you'd say today, yeah, a lot of people just don't expect privacy anymore. They just don't. You know, I would, a friend of mine, thank, by the way, everybody who has shared this already, thank you so much. And on Facebook where I've got a number of friends who have been sharing it, I would get notifications. And if I'd ever get a notification, like so-and-so shared your post, I would make a point of going there and just thanking people for sharing it. Um, I don't know if sometimes people shared it and then I didn't get a notification of it, maybe because they went straight to objective standard and they shared it just from objective standard. So if I haven't thanked you, it's because I didn't get a notification. Thank you. I've tried to be very diligent about that because I'm very grateful when people share it. So thank you for sharing it. Um, I didn't lose my train of thought. I'm going to tell you what I was getting at. So one of my friends, and this was Brian, Brian Yoder, by the way, I'm going to call him out and embarrass him because he is the first person who hired me to talk about privacy. And this is so long ago. I even forget the name of the club that he, I mean, it was so long ago. So my very first just, you know, groping thoughts at this topic where I had very little idea of what I was talking about, except for that probably I thought Warren and Brandeis didn't have a good argument for a distinct right to privacy. I probably got that far. Um, and probably, probably somewhere in the pragmatism realm too. I got, you know, cause it, pragmatism is this beast and I had a very kind of graphical understanding of what the pragmatist conception of privacy was getting us at the time. So I think I might've had that going too. I'm not sure. Just groping at this topic Brian let me come and ramble for his club so long ago and was one of the, you know, like I said, first it was Leonard had me go out and research it. Brian let me talk about it. And then just, you know, little by little, I got to write my whole dissertation on it. So I have to ask, uh, thank Sharon Lloyd from, you know, USC for letting me write a whole dissertation on, you know, effectively reductionism and privacy and do I fit in that place and, um, you know, do I fit in that category of scholar on this issue? I really didn't fit very neatly, but I tried to shoehorn myself into that for purposes of my dissertation. And it was honest. I actually thought that at the time. And then later I thought, oh, I'm not so much in there. Uh, so I have to thank all these people. Anyway, so Brian shared it. See, I still haven't lost my train of thought. Uh, Brian shared my article this morning. So thank you, Brian, for doing that. And then a friend of his comes in and said something like, what privacy? And this is what every, you know, every, maybe the court's just going to say, look, nobody expects privacy anymore. <laughs> um, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy because, in fact, nobody really expects privacy anymore at all. Uh, I, I hope they don't do that. You know, and, and so this is the little bit of hope that I have, right? The little bit of hope that I have that somebody might hear an argument like this is because Justice Scalia had been started, you know, starting down this road where he was bringing meaning back to the Fourth Amendment, where he was saying, okay, when we look at persons, houses, papers, and effects, 
those words mean things, and we can't just lose everything in this amorphous, reasonable expectation of privacy test. If there's a case that actually draws upon a violation of a right to person, houses, papers, effects, then we should employ that language and have it actually mean something. There's a trespass to chattels in the old language, and then we bring in the word effect from the Fourth Amendment. That's what went on in um, U.S. versus Jones. Then in that Kilo case a long time ago, it was the house, right? Houses. If your home is invaded by some fancy government technology, if the government technology is able to gain information that couldn't have been gotten but for a search of your home, then the Fourth Amendment comes into play. We call it a search, said Scalia. So he was going down this path. And for me, what I've been talking about recently, I just have no hope for Trump. Trump is just hopeless. But what if this Gorsuch, who he was always expected to appoint, and he did appoint, okay, good for him. He did what was expected of him as a GOP nominee and GOP president. What if Gorsuch happened to recognize that there's an opportunity in this case to extend the sort of thinking that Scalia started down. Now, you know, the, the, the caveat is that even Scalia doesn't think of property and contract and all those things as principles. Scalia, you know, it's like, okay, persons, houses, papers, effects, and, you know, con- where does contract with cell phone company fit in there? Eh, I, I don't know what Scalia would have done with it, but I, I just tend to think that if I had been able to get in front of Scalia and make this sort of argument and trace it to the common law, something should have been able to be done. You know, you could talk about, and he always said, said original meaning. You know, for me, if you're going to talk about these originalist guys, you want to more maybe go more original intent with this because of the common law reference. But this, I swear, this is probably what was in the minds of people when they started the third party doctrine that in that context, that criminal context, people were making an illegal contract and they would not expect that contract to be enforceable at common law. Nobody could. Um, Now, what do we have in here? Oh, John in the chat room says most people don't really care. You know, if you go around with the the news today, I was looking, you know, New York Times, Washington Post to see, by the way, I put in the program notes, if you're interested in seeing what the arguments are going to look like, because I haven't seen them published yet. I hadn't seen an article. I was looking up until a little while before the show started. I was looking to see if anybody had done some reporting on what was said during the oral arguments. What I do know is that after a certain period of time, SCOTUS blog will publish a transcript of the oral argument and it'll do it in that same place that I gave you guys the link in, in the program notes. So in the program notes, I gave you a link. It was uh, Carpenter v. U.S. at SCOTUS blog. You'll go to that, and I'm going to keep going to that, and I'm going to be looking to see what is said in the oral argument. Everybody looks at the oral argument to try to read the tea leaves, you know, because some judges, they just don't ask that much, and you don't know what they're thinking at all. Some judges, they'll ask certain questions, but it doesn't necessarily reveal what they're thinking, but they're revealing what counterarguments they might be grappling with. You don't, you don't really know necessarily by what is 
asked and said in oral argument what's going to happen in the ruling itself. I think we have a few months probably to wait, a couple months at least, I bet, sometime in January at least. Um, but you can look at that, you know, and, and try to get some information, some indication of what's on their minds. I would be really surprised if anything along these lines was was asked, but I, I'll, I'm going to read it with interest, and I assume you guys can as well. But no, yeah, when I was looking out there, when I was looking out there on the news today, it was all about the tax cuts. Are these so-called tax cuts going to be passed for us? And so much misconduct, sexual misconduct out there in every single field. Some radio guy who nobody ever expected. He was on Minnesota Public Radio and he was famous for some other stuff too. Been fired because of some conduct misallegations. Matt Lauer, I guess. So it's everywhere. Some of the politicians, they're being able to stay in office. I don't know why. A lot of the journalists are just being let go. And this is the sort of thing they're talking about. I don't know if I go over to, I was looking at the two things that I subscribe to, thanks to the support you guys give to the show, Washington Post and New York Times. And yeah, so if I'm over here, uh, Trump wrong to share anti-Muslim videos, today's show Matt Lauer fired inappropriate sexual behavior garrison keeler he's the one prairie home companion yeah fired allegations of improper behavior senate is rushing the tax bill forward but the republicans split over key details so are they going to pass this thing that is or is not a tax cut who knows you know as if all of this is more important than what's going on in the court today i don't think any of it is and i just don't see anything on this front page. If I was running these, now, am I, I'm just biased because this is my pet issue, but I think anybody, I mean, you're sitting on Blog Talk Radio right now. You have shared some information with Blog Talk Radio. This is affecting anybody who's listening to me now. As I said on my Facebook stunt post, I said, if you're reading this right now, what the court does in Carpenter is going to affect you because you're sharing information with a third party, which is Facebook. And what the court is going to talk about is whether the government's entitled to grab all that all the time without a warrant or not. And if not, what are the contours of the way that they're going to carve it out? Um, it, it's hugely important. Don't see anything here. Is it because they think you can't divine anything? I don't know. Let me go look over at New York Times. Yeah, so Washington Post, whole first page, didn't see anything. Um, New York Times. Yeah, so actually, God, it's so funny. The exact placement of the stories, the two stories about the anti-Muslim video clips, I'm going to have to look into that story. I guess I didn't even see that one yet. Uh, Trump shares inflammatory anti-Muslim video clips. That story was top left on both New York Times and Washington Post. Just to the right of it, a little bit lower, under an image, same on both websites, Matt Lauer being fired for the accusations of sexual misconduct. Yes, taxes underneath that. Garrison Keillor, very similar placement of stories. 
I tend to find that there are differences between Washington Post and New York Times enough to justify having the, the two subscriptions. And I like to be able to access follow conspiracy over at Washington Post. So I think it's worthwhile to do the two. Washington Post is significantly cheaper per month than New York Times as well, so it's not that much more. But yeah, that's interesting that the two... Okay, so do I see anything here about the argument? What was the argument like in front of the Supreme Court? So yeah, so I'm going to be looking for reporting as well and for different of the legal scholars to try to say, okay, well, so-and-so said this or asked this question. And for that judge, it typically means, you know, if he's asking a question that it's something that he's worried about but doesn't necessarily reflect his own thinking or does it reflect his own thinking whenever he asks a question. These are the sort of things that I'm going to be interested in. Sotomayor might get active in this case as well. Sotomayor, by the way, wrote a, a concurrence in U.S. versus Jones that explicitly questioned the whole third-party doctrine. I think later she regretted doing that. And people kept asking her about it. No, 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 they're not really going to do anything with it. It's possible that she could get active. U.S. versus Jones, as far as I know, was unanimous by the court. They didn't necessarily all agree with the reasoning and Sotomayor wrote a concurrence but it was you know the court pretty much understood yeah this is a search and you know you had both the liberals and conservatives united. There's a huge opportunity here if they would take it. If they would take it. Um, But I I don't think that they will. Uh, Snowden Snowden was tweeting about it a little bit, and one of the reasons that I'm a little discouraged this morning is because I was talking about this in the chat room before the show started, that I had spent some time on Twitter this morning trying to get, and yesterday as well, but this morning he was tweeting, and I was you know, tweeting at the same time. I was trying to get his attention to look at the article, and on one of the tweets that he had sent out, I think I was the first response, had a substantive response with a link, and there were only two responses to this tweet that he had retweeted out there. So I'd assume that I'd get a look for that, but as far as I know, I did not. didn't hear anything about it. And then there was another one where he was in general actually tweeting about Carpenter, and um, a guy named Nate is arguing for ACLU, and he's saying, go Nate respond, link, everything. One, I was one of about 16 who responded. A lot of people just retweet them, I guess. They don't respond. So I responded, no. I'm pretty discouraged about even having Snowden listen to it. I've tried in the past. I've approached through uh, Ben Weisner, who was Snowden's attorney at ACLU, and then also uh, Glenn Greenwald I met in person. And he's an attorney as far as I know, but I was talking to him about the argument. It, it's it's possible when I was talking to Greenwald that I wasn't as effective at ex, at explaining the issue as I was in my op-ed. But you know, the whole idea of you know Glenn Greenwald respecting rights to property and contract, I, I doubt that he was even eager to to listen to it. So I'm I'm kind of discouraged. I mean, Snowden he tweets a lot of pretty leftist things as well out there. Um, I'm kind of discouraged about whether even Snowden will want to hear this. Of course, the thing that's most important is not whether he hears it, except for that he could provide a platform for it, right? He could retweet it out there or something. But it's more important whether some of these Supreme Court justices or clerks 
have the argument available to them. I do have, you know, the academic article that has been published in St. John's Law Review since, I don't know what, 2013, 14. So if any diligent person was doing a search on third-party doctrine, they could come across that argument and, and, you know, use it as well. So it's there. But I think it's more compelling as presented in, in this form when I talk specifically about the fact that the court went from the criminal to the non-criminal context without an explanation and that they needed to. And I don't think it's too technical. So <laughs> selfishness is what is wrong with these lawyers that they don't care about contract law? I mean, they, you know, they actually probably, a lot of lawyers, they probably prefer that contract be sort of pragmatic, right? You know, contracts haven't been upheld properly since Lochner, you know, when they overturned Lochner. Um, you know, and Lochner, I don't know if you remember the Lochner case. So the Lochner was when um, the court nullified some regulations on baker's hours or something because they wanted to leave it to the private contract between the baker and the employer. The, you know, the state governments have been trying to limit the number of hours that people can work. And so there was this whole argument, a very, what they, they used to actually call this a Brandeis brief. And a Brandeis brief would be a brief that would appeal to the pragmatic state of mind. And it would just throw a whole bunch of data in front of somebody and talk about basically why the government would have an interest in regulating this certain area based on a whole bunch of data. No, you know, there's no rights. It's just balancing the demand of this versus the demand of that. And let me throw all this data at you about why people demand certain things. So, um, you know, they had all this data about baking as a particular industry that affects the health of everybody because we eat the bread and, if the bakers, they don't get enough sleep and then they're going to do bad work and they'll produce unhealthful bread and all this stuff, right? And it turned out that the court in that case is like one of the last stands of contract that the court actually upheld the sanctity of contract over government regulation. But that was like the last of it. And then after that, it was all downhill. And that was, again, back 1905. So... Ever since then, contract has been this pragmatic thing. And what I was going to say to selfishness in the chat room, yeah, you know, I'm really doing the female thing. They talk about females going off on these tangents and then coming back. So yeah, I'm coming back. Um, the lawyers, they would prefer that contract be the way that it is, which is not strictly upheld. Uh, why? Because it creates more work for them. Now, first of all, if you are a lawyer who is writing a contract, then you have to spend a whole lot more hours. And the reason you have to spend a lot more hours is you can't just write, you know, a very sing, you know, simple single page memorandum of your agreement between two parties. It's got to be this bulletproof, no holes of any kind document that, you know, like anticipates every possible contingency that would happen, you know, like if a meteor comes from Mercury or something and hits into Idaho, then you're going to get $200 and I'm going to get 500 bucks or whatever. Right. So any potential contingency that can happen, they try to anticipate in the contract and, 
you know, talk what they, they call it liquidated damages and, you know, specify what those are going to be and everything. So a lot more hours paid for lawyers, you know, doing this, right? And then the other thing is that the doctrines, when they talk about unconscionability and, you know, sort of these vague and woozy doctrines that we have in contract law now, creates all sorts of opportunity for litigation as well. So they'd say, okay, you know, is this really the term of your contract? Well, that's unconscionable. Nobody with a conscience, you know, in effect, would require somebody with whom they're contracting to adhere to those terms. You know, it's horrible, it's onerous, and this and that. And people litigate this stuff all the time. So, you you know, it used to be very, very simple. You'd make a contract, and was the making of that contract fully voluntary by competent human beings? So, you know, could, you couldn't do a contract with a child, for example. Children aren't of legal age to, to make contracts. Uh, I actually remember that because I had a friend in high school who somehow I, she somehow managed to get a car when she was 16 or something, but she wasn't the legal age for how, how did she get a deal to get a car? And it was this big thing. Uh, of course, I think she paid some horrible, disgusting interest rate in order to get it without her parents' participation or something. It was really tough stuff. But yeah, you have to be a certain age. But you know, if you're of legally sound mind and the contract is entered into willingly, you know, it's not the point of a gun and all this stuff, then a court should uphold the terms within certain limits, right? You know, you can't like contract yourself into slavery. There were certain limitations at common law. But, you know, they didn't go in and they didn't say, oh, we don't like this term, we don't like that term, and so therefore we're going to rewrite it. Today, courts are in the business of rewriting contracts. And I think a lot of lawyers, they like it because it creates work for them. So... I think that they would be pretty upset if contract was upheld in a principled way, the way that it used to be with Lochner and before that. Um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of people don't want this. Uh, you know, I, I was actually in talks with an organization about doing an amicus brief for the Carpenter case. And I was in those talks for a while, assuming that this amicus brief was going to go forward. And then I found out that it wasn't going to go forward just before I went on vacation. And then I lost all the time and the ability. And then there was another organization that they wanted to do something very specialized and they weren't interested in doing something sort of broad like I was doing. So I got in the lurch with absolutely nobody to do an amicus brief with, not for lack of trying with, you know, reasonable people. Uh, people didn't want to touch this. This is very radical theory. And it, you know, the, the question is, does it assume so much of my context? My context, you know, Rand said very little about privacy. So this is not Rand. I'm not going out and saying, this is what Ayn Rand said about privacy or anything. Not at all. She has like a footnote side comment in a letter that she wrote to some guy. And she said, she doesn't really know about whether there's a right to privacy, but what she knows is that you don't blame technology for invasions of privacy. You know, it's 
human beings, right? You know, guns don't kill people, people kill people, that kind of thing. So you can't say, oh, you know, all the problems are due to quote technology. That's a cop out that you need to actually do the thinking about the application of the principles to the tech context. And that's what I've been trying to do in all of the the work that I've done. But yeah, so she said very little. She didn't say there's a right to privacy or there's not. She never said anything about, oh yeah, you know, privacy is based in property and contract. It it was just a very generalized comment. So this is not Rand. But at the same time, if I wasn't thinking from an objectivist perspective and I wasn't thinking about the importance of upholding our rights to property and contract, that those are important for human life, those are crucial for human life. If I didn't have that value-oriented perspective, I wouldn't have thought about this. You know, one of one of the aspects of my research initially, right, when I was talking about how we shouldn't have this distinct right to privacy, that we should just rest privacy on property and contract. We should recognize that privacy is a state, a state that we can create for ourselves and protect for ourselves with uh, property and contract. When I was doing that, one of the core aspects of my argument was looking at the cases in which the courts started balancing privacy on the one hand versus property or contract rights on the other. And an example that I've talked about a number of times, but it's just such a good canonical example is this. Here, here's one. There's a rental car company and the rental car company has in the cars that it rents out to customers, it has some sort of a tracking device. And that tracking device, I think probably, you know, it is a GPS device, but it also tracks your speed. And so if you rent a car from the company, they have in the contract that if you drive the car above X number of miles per hour, you know, you're speeding at whatever clip you are, that they will add an extra charge to your rental bill. Okay. So somebody, of course, you don't read those things. Oh my God, you know, you list, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I sign it, you know, and you want to be on your way. You've been waiting a long line. You just had a long flight. You know, last thing you want to do is like read this fine print of the. So you sign the thing, you go off. Somebody goes off and drives really fast and gets charged the extra fine and decides that they're going to go ahead and sue the rental car company for an invasion of privacy. So somehow the property right of the rental car company in their car and in having their car not driven at excessive speed and, you know, creating undue risk and maybe wear and tear on the car, right? You know, who knows how fast these cars are decide, you know, designed to go within the, RPMs that keep the engine running okay and the right all the details right that you know, they they're allowed to specify that you can't drive a car above x speed that's part of their property right they're saying we rent this car to you but under the condition that you agree not to add this risk or wear and tear to our car that's the property right but the court was asked to balance privacy versus that and the fact that these things actually go to court. It shows you that if you think of privacy as this distinct right and then you start clashing it against, I mean, another thing is drug testing employees or something. Yeah. If, if you are offering somebody a job and you say, I don't want somebody on the job who's impaired because 
they're a safety risk. They're going to treat my customers badly. They're going to commit sexual misconduct in, on the job because they're drunk. You know, let's, let's tie in the daily news, uh, whatever it is, right? Yeah, drug and alcohol tests of employees. You'd say, well, it invades my right to privacy. Well, you don't have a right to a job. But these are cases that come up all the time in the courts and with mixed results. So there's some cases in which they're saying, no, privacy is defeating in court an employer's right to property or contract. That's horrible because what does it end up doing? It ends up undermining property and contract. And if we recognize that property and contract are the actual basis for privacy, it's how we get privacy. That's how we get where we are. We cannot make a contract with Facebook today where Facebook agrees to keep our information private, assuming they do, right? You know, we could all talk about what's Facebook's policy about privacy, right? With selling your information or whatever. That's a different question, but you know, we, it's not actually not possible for us to make a contract with Facebook where they're going to keep it private and that that is protected against government intrusion unless there's a warrant presented. That's not possible today. How do we get here? Because contract is, I was going to say persona non grata, but it's like doctrinal non grata or something. Contract is, it's nothing. People hate contracts, right? Contracts are evil and lawyers they make their money that way or something that's what it is um i have got i've been just rambling on and on and i hope you guys are okay with my self-indulgent show here what i'm going to do is i'm going to just play a tiny bit of interlude for a second and take a sip of water and be right back maybe talk about a thing or two else Hmm, I thought I would. Oh, there it goes. Okay, thanks everyone for indulging me on, on the venting there. You know, I have, if anybody had a question or they wanted to ask anything about anything I've been unclear on or if they have a disagreement or a challenge about the argument that I have, you can call in if you want, 760-888-5817. If you're on the line and you want to talk, go ahead and press 1. Uh, Craig in the chat room says, my contract is that I eschew all social media. That is one option, right? And some people today would applaud you for that and say, okay, your life is probably not um, deprived at all in any way because of that. But then there's others of us who say, well, social media is a way that we stay connected with friends, family. We meet new people around the world, a lot of like-minded people. So social media has been a tremendous value for many of us. Now, for me as well, it's a way that I'm able to promote the show and, and do all of that. So I like that. But, you know, Facebook has this wonderful, fairly easy to use user interface that makes it extremely easy to share. In fact, they, they spend their whole life encouraging you to share. Why? Because they want everybody to share more so that everybody's looking at Facebook more so that their eyes are on the ads that are bringing them 
all the revenue. They want your eyes on the ads. But anyway, they make it, it's a very appealing user interface. It's easy to use. It encourages you sharing with your friends and acquaintances out there. And, you know, you can create photo albums of your vacation and share with everybody. There's also Instagram and, you know, there's a flavor of social media for everybody. Twitter, awesome. You know, now Twitter is not quite the challenge that it used to be because now you've got, I guess, 280 characters, whereas you used to have 140. There was, I always thought of Twitter as this game trying to, you know, punch the most bang for your buck in the 140 characters that they gave you. And I actually have to read you this because I, I just got such a kick out of it this morning. I'm still on the, you know, I wonder whether I'm ever going to do a, a Patreon site or not. I, I don't know that I would, that I, that I want to do it. But the guy who is on Twitter, who's just so funny, David Birch, he calls him, it's Iowa Hawk blog. I was looking at one of his tweets this morning and then I ended up over at his profile and uh, he's got pinned. I, you know, I, I don't obviously go to his profile very often because I hadn't seen this yet. This was posted on July 9th, but he's got pinned at the top. He says, are you crippled with guilt about reading my tweets for free? He says, good news is relief is now just a click away. And this is the way he puts it. So he's got a, you know, his own Patreon site. It says, uh, David Burge is creating uh, creating word arrangements on the internet. <laughs> I love it. It was like word arrangements. And that is what he does so well. And this is something that I've tried to, you know, hone my talent for a little bit here and there. I actually should have put in the program notes. I'm sorry. I was a little bit lazy with the program notes this morning. I was really been pretty discouraged about, you know, not being able to get the argument out there first I mean, again, the, Craig, oh, my God, love him because he helped check my sanity that, yes, this was a logically written nice piece uh, because I've just been rejected at all these different outlets. You know, it's like NRO and The Hill and HuffPost and uh, Investors Business Daily. It's like crickets out there. Um, so, you know, thank God for that, right? Um, but, yeah, I was discouraged. And uh, so I didn't put a whole bunch in the program notes today. A couple things I should have put in. One was my tweets that I did to Trump yesterday. Both of them ended up being uh, along the same theme. I can go ahead and read them to you a little bit. Let me see if I can get over to my, my Twitter feed. How buried are these tweets? Who knows? I've got so many things out there trying to share. Oh, I ended up getting a bit of attention because I I responded to Trump. Trump was happy that he's able to replace the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and I just, re- you know, tweeted back to him, why not get rid of it entirely? And that created this whole storm of people telling me I was basically the antichrist because I would suggest of getting, you know, getting rid of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, but um, that wasn't funny in any way. It was just a very normal thing to, to suggest, you know, he's all excited. You know, I so said, why not abolish it altogether? That's all I wrote back to Trump when he was talking about his victory in the lawsuit and then just tons of stuff about that. So it got buried. Okay. So I had two different tweets to him 
And one of them, you know, North Korea is at their stuff again and is the latest from North Korea. Does it really represent a danger? Does it not? Whatever. What Trump did is he um, tweeted out there after North Korea has this missile launch. He says, after the North Korea missile launch, it's more important than ever to fund our government and military. Dems shouldn't hold troop funding hostage for amnesty and illegal immigration. I ran on stopping illegal immigration and one big, they can't now threaten a shutdown to get their demands. So he's been having this trouble with the Democrats. Why? Because they want him to do what he indicated he might be open to doing, which is, you know, bringing DACA into the law, right? And protecting some of the so-called dreamers, making a concession for people who have come here and worked and don't present a you know, risk to us. They're, they're not going to violate our rights. They just want to work, be productive. Um, but he doesn't want to compromise, right? And he doesn't want the Dems to hold up funding or votes from all this stuff. And he cites the North Korea missile launch as the reason why the Democrats shouldn't demand any sort of compromise. So, so my tweet to him is, I shouldn't have to compromise on, on immigration. Why? East Asia. <laughs> exclamation point. North Korea is always now in my mind going to be East Asia for the rest of Trump's presidency. And East Asia, if you are familiar with 1984, is one of the eternal potential enemies. We're always at war in, you know, if if you live in Oceania, right? If you live in Oceania in uh, 1984, then you know that you're always at war with either Eurasia or East Asia and, you know, it changes all the time and stuff. So, yeah, East Asia, that's, that's North Korea. That's his, that's his reason that the Democrats, that he shouldn't have to compromise with the Democrats because of North Korea's latest shenanigans. So after, of course, I'm down thinking along those lines, I decided I could respond to another tweet of his. He's been tweeting again about the stupid NFL players kneeling as if, you know, he's president. He's got nothing better to do than to tweet about the NFL players kneeling. So he writes this. He says, at least 24 players kneeling this weekend at NFL stadiums that are now having a very hard time filling up. The American public is fed up with the disrespect the NFL is paying to our country, our flag, and our national anthem, weak and out of control. And so already in sort of 1984 mode, I say, 24, the 24 players, 24 is probably nearly enough to keep everyone going for the full two minutes, I reckon. So, yeah, so I was having a little fun. And so I'm, I am working on my Twitter skills. And every so often I do a decent job, but God, Burge, Burge is a monster. And Shapiro's quite good as well. On, on Twitter if you watch some of what he does. The word arrangements by Shapiro are also quite excellent. So I, I aspire to do better word arrangements. Whether I would ever solicit donations on Patreon for those, I don't know, but um, I thought that was amusing. So yeah, Twitter, that's one flavor of social media out of which you can get value. I do think it's a game in, in some respects. Go out there and tweet back to Trump because you do have to show the defiance. That's what Americans do. Um, we don't just obey these overbearing authorities. Um, 
you can have a contract with a follower or a like on social media, says Selfishness. I don't know exactly how that works. I don't know what the contract is, essentially. I think the, everybody's contract is with the social media outlet. I don't know if we make contracts with each other so much in, in that sense. Um, yeah, so that was one thing I wanted to talk to you about was the, the tweets. And then the other, there was a story, and it was kind of buried, and it's a follow-up to the horrible um, thing that went on in Texas, the the shooting recently in in, uh, in the church in Texas. Let me get over to the story that galled me so. And, you know, again, my mood was pretty yucky this morning. Usually I try to, when I post a story, I'll excerpt a, a very essential element of the article that I want to draw people's attention to and stuff and publish the article that way. But this, I just looked at the headline and I knew what this was about because I remember after the the shooting in, in Texas, you know, that they had talked about the failure of the Air Force to report the guy, the scumbag, to the appropriate database that would have prevented him from getting a gun. So there's a story, Air Force failed to report dozens of service members to gun database. It's a New York Times story. I should have put that in the program notes. The little lady is in my ear telling me I have no time to tell you about this story, but what do they tell you at the beginning? The Air Force is moving to fix the problems. Stop moving to fix the problems. Report everybody starting now. And I think that the Air Force owes damages to anybody who has been injured because of their failure to report you know our government the first number one job is it's supposed to protect our rights and this is a huge glaring disgusting default you know they want to make air force airmen's lives easy uh, relatively speaking and the fact that they are you know quote sacrificing for us they're not sacrificing for us and they should be held to the same standards as we are. Anyway, okay, thank you everyone for indulging me a bit today. I will be back again next week, 3 p.m. Eastern Wednesday. Until then, we will keep an eye on uh, the court's arguments and stuff like that. Look for me to post about it. Okay? Take care.